You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that in these days, we still get to gather and sing praise to you all throughout this world there are brothers and sisters in Christ underground and hidden they sing they sing praise and worship to you. We get to come here, even in the midst of a pandemic, we still get to sing and we honor you and thank you for who you are, O oh God. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of all prayer and thanksgiving. And we just thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, we, we pray for our friends who cannot be here, whether it be because they're sick or an abundance of caution in light of the ongoing pandemic. Pray that you'd bless them and be near to them in this moment. Lord God, for those who are ill, bring healing. And then finally, God, we just pray as we continue to move forward in this celebration. May we think well of what it means for us to personally, to sacrifice our own life for the cause of Christ, for the cause of our Savior. Such a challenge. And we need help to think well by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate that. And thank you all for being here. As you can tell, just looking around the room and just for my prayer, many people are out either just to be cautious in light of what's going on with COVID-19 or just simply sick under normal circumstances. They might be here, but, you know, um, again, um, you know how it is. At least it has been with me. Like, if you're just kind of feeling, oh, I got a foggy head, you just kind of plow through. Some people are just like, no, let's just stay home. And, and that is kind of what we're in right now, and um, that's okay. And I think we just want to call it what it is. But we are here, and we have the great privilege to gather and to look at God's Word. So if you got your Bible... Go ahead and open it up to Acts 21, Acts 21. And we'll be looking at verses 1, taking it all the way to verse 16. And this is God's word for us uh, this evening, right now. And when we had parted them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We had, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on our left, we sailed for Syria and landed in Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. 
And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach. We prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Potomac, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we... And the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And when some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Minson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So on my journey here from our house, I really put it upon my heart and just simply asked the question like, am I willing to die for Jesus? Like we, we heard Joe mention it in worship. And it's, it's a weighty question. On Friday morning, um, I was listening to a podcast called Thinking in Public. It's a long-form interview podcast done by Albert Moeller. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Perhaps you've heard of him. He does a, a daily, a Monday through Friday podcast called The Briefing, more popular. Uh, his interview in, in this Thinking in Public podcast was with a former journalist turned historian, uh, Rick Atkinson. Atkinson had written several Pulitzers for his books on World War II. I just, I just bought one. It, it was acclaimed. I hadn't heard of it. I love uh, learning about history in general. So I'm like, I'm, I got it. So I got one of three sitting on my shelf at home waiting to be read. Uh, well, he, he wants to tease out, Atkinson that is, tease out what has made the United States uh, unique since its founding. So he, he wrote basically on World War II. He, he had finished this trilogy. Now he's looking at the Revolutionary War. Now he's asking that's, that question. In his view, what's made America unique? Why were so many people, this is the question he asked on the podcast that he wanted to answer, why were so many people willing to die for the American cause? And what were they ready to die for? 
Atkinson said, this is one of the most important questions you can ask when you look at history. It remains an important and telling question today. Like, what is a person willing to die for, if anything? Maybe the answer is, I'm not willing to die for anything. Okay, that's one answer. But what if you are willing to die? What, what are you willing to die for? The answer reveals what a person values more than like anything else in the world. Like how you answer that question is really significant because it shows you and shows everyone else what you truly value. Uh, here's another example of what I'm getting at, which is really just the main point of this passage. Here's why I have a tremendous respect uh, for military personnel who've served in, at least in my lifetime, uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, or any war really for that matter. Um, I have an immense respect for men and women in the military because they've sacrificed in ways that many other people would not or will not. Like, listen, I don't need to agree with the reasons of the Iraqi or, or Afghani war or any other war for that matter. I'm not talking about the justification of the war. I'm talking about individuals who are willing to say yes to fight for people who are like, no, I'm good. Or they can't, whatever the, whatever the case might be. They're willing to serve and sacrifice their lives in ways that many just cannot imagine. But the question remains, does it not? If we look back into the annals of history and see people willing to die, what are they willing to die for? Were people willing to die for an idea or a principle? I think that very much is the American Revolution. You're, you're sacrificing your life for an idea or principles. Were people willing to die to protect freedom? Or people willing to die to, so that generations past them could obtain freedom? Or people willing to die for their friends or their family or even like their community, right? So let me just ask the question plainly to me. I'm going to ask it to myself. I was asking myself this question in the car. I'm going to ask it to you. Is there something or someone you are willing to die for? Weighty question. We're at the point in the book of Acts where Paul is closing out his, um, what we call his third missionary journey. We have seen in Acts 20 and Acts 21, Paul feels this deep conviction, right, that on, his, on this journey he needs to get back to Jerusalem we begin in chapter 21 where Paul is in Kos, like near Corinth. So think modern day Greece. And by the time we get to verse 16, he's on the cusp of entering Jerusalem in a place called Caesarea. So if you're trying to keep track uh, of where Paul has been throughout the book of Acts and all the cities and towns, it's just, your head just keeps going back and forth. Like every week I'm pulling out a map trying to figure out where we're at this week with Paul. It's just dizzying. To put it all in perspective, between Acts 13 and Acts 21, about 20 years have elapsed, have eclipsed. Along the way, along the way we have received essential snippets of Paul's travel that have filled out how the kingdom of God moves forth on earth. 
We've talked a lot about that throughout our series on Acts. So aside from the physical journey of Paul, we've also seen and been reading about a spiritual man. Paul was a rebel against God and a persecutor of Christians, but God in his grace and mercy saved Paul for himself and from hell, right? Paul went from preaching against Christianity and now he's preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He went from preaching against the resurrection of Jesus Christ to being used by God to raise Eutychus, Acts 20, from the dead. So he's preaching against the resurrection. Then we get to Acts 20. We got this guy who fell out of the window, dead, and Paul's like, I'm praying. He's alive. Paul is a man who is taking the lives of others, who is now willing to lay down his own life for others and for Jesus. And there are other contrasts I can make between Paul, the persecuting Jew, and now Paul, the follower of Jesus Christ. So from Acts 21, we not only see how Paul finally arrives at Jerusalem, a long-term goal, but we know it leads up to this statement that we read in verse 13. I am willing to go to prison... (laughs) He says, I am willing to die and all in the name of Jesus and all for Jesus. Paul is resolved to follow Jesus wherever God leads. As we move toward Jerusalem and 2 verse 13. I see three headings to help us make sense of what's going on in this particular passage. We see in between verses 10 and 13, there's this warning to Paul. <laughs> You're doing what? No, I got something to say. Here's the warning. We read in verse 13. So that was verse 10 to 12, excuse me. Now verse 13, there's this want or desire to go to Jerusalem. And then verse 14, we got this will that is being spoken about. Whose will? It's the will of God. So we're going to kind of diagnose this passage through these three particular lenses. This warning, the want, and the will. And that is alliteration that happens once a year. Congratulations, you are here to witness that. Before looking at the warning, I do think it's worth pointing out a sub-point in a pattern of Paul's journey to Jerusalem. This is part of the context. Between Kos and Caesarea, Paul and his friends stay in Tyre uh, for a few days. That's in verse 3 of your passage. If you look at your Bible, verse 3, they're staying in Tyre. Before leaving, you might have caught this, the entire church prays. Here's the latter part of verse 5 in the beginning of verse 6. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. The same thing happened when Paul left Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 36. The community of Christians prayed. Going back to Acts 2, we see that the church comes together praying for one another. Praying to God to discern his will. Praying to God for wisdom. Praying to God for help in times of need. Praying to God for people to rise from the dead. Praying to God with thanksgiving and gratitude for provision that God provides. The book of Acts is written as a narrative, as many of you know, but within the story are all these examples of the people praying as God's mission moves forth. Verses 5 and 6 of Acts 22 is just the latest example. And their prayer would be that God protect Paul. He had already, Paul that has undergone massive persecution 
now they would plead with God to protect Paul from further persecution, I would imagine, especially in Jerusalem. What's so bad about Jerusalem? Well, there are a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem who do not want to see Paul. Not only is Paul preaching a message that the Jewish leaders considered heresy, but remember, Paul went from the Jewish religion and, became, and God saved him, so there's an act of betrayal in the, from the perspective and the mindset of the Jews. So the sub-point to the main point is simply this. The church needs to be praying for the advancement of the gospel. The church comes to God knowing he hears their prayers and God responds according to his will to the prayers of the church. And prayer is what Paul needs as he continues his journey to what is called the city of peace, Jerusalem. In light of what we have seen about prayer and acts. Here is, I think, the prophetic exhortation for the church, you know, big C and in this local church. Whatever's coming down the pike for the church in the U.S., we need to be a church of prayer. I think that's just what we see over and over again in Acts. We've got to be prostrate on the floor or on our knees, sitting, standing, pacing back and forth. I don't care, but we need to be in prayer. We need to plead with God so that we can know his will for the church, even for this particular local church. We need to plead with God for the strength and courage to follow Jesus wherever the road leads. So that's just like a little bit of context as we think about the warning and the want and the will. We must be a church of prayer. We must be followers of Jesus Christ who are on our knees praying. So Paul leaves Tyre for Caesarea. The believers in Tyre prayed for him. They leave. They go to Caesarea. When Paul and his companions arrive in Caesarea, again, just outside of Jerusalem, they're greeted by Philip the Evangelist. That's verse 8. Uh, this is the same dude who, who uh, you might read about in uh, Acts chapter 8, where, where uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is going along, and, and Philip is like, hey, I'm going to tell you about the gospel. And so he tells him about the gospel from Isaiah 53. We read Philip had also had four unmarried daughters who all prophesied. <laughs> Now, I find this to be just a really interesting statement, right? Uh, we're, not giving any, we're not given any other details about these daughters, but Luke, the author of Acts, just kind of puts it in there. Like, we all know Philip the Evangelist. He's got him at Acts 8, but... For a moment, indulge me in a bit of like hermeneutical uh, speculation. Why does Luke randomly mention these four prophetic daughters of Philip? The, the statement comes out of nowhere, like I said. It seems if the mention of Philip's daughters, if it was excluded from the story, like nothing would be lost. So why are they here? It could be that Luke is signaling that the prophetic gift is not limited to those we revere, right? When we think about the, the gift of prophecy in the Bible, we, our minds immediately go to ah, Isaiah, right? Or even Agabus who shows up in the book of Acts and other places. It's not only limited to men we read, right? The gift of prophecy is clearly being given to women. Unmarried women, for that matter. 
Could it be that God is signaling that he gives the gift of prophecy to whomever he wishes? Again, I'm, I'm speculating, but there are no wasted words or verses in the Bible. And Philip's four prophetic daughters are mentioned with purpose. So I find that really interesting. The word about Paul's arrival spreads to another prophet, Agabus. Agabus is not a local. He arrives in town to meet Paul. At the very least, five people now are identified as prophets in this passage, and some ministry takes place. From this prophetic ministry comes a warning from Agabus, and it's a graphic warning to Paul. Take a look at verse 11 and 12. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Like, just imagine that. Like, who's, Paul's going to be like, who's this guy? And he's like, no, I want your belt, Paul. Okay. <laughs> just kind of handed over, wondering what's about to take place. And he bound his own hands and feet. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Wow. Now, I do not have, like, the f physical flexibility of Agabus. Like, I can barely touch my toes. But he used Paul's belt to tie his own hands and feet together. And I do not think Agabus is trying to convey precisely how the Jews will bind Paul, but Paul will be turned over to the Gentiles. And you know what, Paul? It's not going to be comfortable we should note the prophetic picture of Agabus will come to fruition as we continue to look at the book of Acts. But there's no indication that this prophetic picture caused Paul to rethink his goal. Now, think about that. If, if let's, say, let's say I had a prophetic picture for you, <laughs> and, I'm, and I say something to the effect, I got this picture in my head, and long story short, you're going to be persecuted, and you may die. You know, at that point, you might be thinking, I'm going to rethink some of my life decisions, you know? This isn't going to end well. He even told me it's not going to end well. But Paul here, he would not be convinced otherwise. And Paul's friends even urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So we got this prophetic picture, and then his friends come alongside. It's like, don't go, Paul. Do not go. They did not want to see their friend tortured and potentially killed. You know, if I was one of Paul's friends, I would do the same thing. You know, I'd probably grab my own belt, tie him up, and make him sit in a quarter and say, you're not moving anywhere, Paul, until you concede that you're not going to Jerusalem because I, as your friend, do not want to see you die. A person is not supposed to let his friend go down a road that potentially leads to death, right? Like, that's, a, that's our impulse. And rightfully so. We read about this tension that exists between Paul and his friends. Uh, recently, I read this story from R.C. Sproul. He shared a personal story uh, trying to explain the dynamic of a man called to serve in the face of death and loved ones who did not want to see him go. Here's his story of the late R.C. Sproul. 
on December 7th, 1941, the United States of America was attacked and war was declared the following day by the President of the United States who said that this date would live in infamy. On December 8th, 1941, the recruiting office of the United States military had the highest number of volunteers in American history. At that time, my father was too old to be drafted, so he was asked to chair the local draft board, which he accepted. Sproul continues, after a few months of making decisions as to which men should go to war and not go to war, he shocked everyone in the house when one day he appeared on the back door of the kitchen dressed in an army uniform. He said to my mother, honey, there's no way I could keep sending those kids to war and not go myself. I am constrained to go. My mother cried and asked him not to go. Sproul ends by saying this, it is interesting that when people are called to do their duty, and when that duty involves danger and peril and risk, it is their closest friends and family who inevitably try to talk to them out of it. Like friends and family do not try to dissuade another friend or family member of a decision unless there's immediate danger that lies ahead. Like, we're all going to make a bunch of decisions. We just kind of let people make their decisions. But when there's danger on the horizon, we're like, whoa, wake up. I have questions. And actually, I don't want you to go into that direction. In verse 12 of our passage, the English word urge is more like pleaded. Don't go. Just as Paul's friends pleaded with God in prayer, now they plead with Paul not to leave Caesarea. Paul's friends pleaded with him not to go to the one place where danger was most apparent. There's a lot of places you can go, Paul. Just don't go there. Please. In 2006, I had planned a trip to uh, Afghanistan. Me, myself, and a buddy of mine were going to go. We're going to visit a missionary who was in Afghanistan. And you know what was coming down just a few months later? A wedding. <laughs> so how do you think my wife felt in that moment that I was planning a trip to Afghanistan in a post-9-11 era? <laughs> she wanted to make sure that a wedding took place. And she had a lot of questions about why it should be going to Afghanistan. I want to make the point that following the will of God sometimes means taking risks. Following the will of God for your life, my life, sometimes means we're taking risks. A clear calling of God creates a resolve in the heart and soul of a person. A calling from God can create a want, a desire, transcending our standard practices and ways of thinking. A desire to walk out the will of God is not irrational, but it sometimes means embracing the tension that exists between God's infallible logic and our limited fallible perspective or logic. I mean, look how Paul responds to the pleading. This is verse 13. He's like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing, guys? Why are you pleading? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Over my years of pastoral ministry, I have seen Christians who are called to live among a group of people with no Christian presence, right? And they bury verse 13 in their heart. They are aware of the danger. They are aware of what they're giving up when the wheels of the plane leave the ground. They are aware of the risk. They are more mindful of the need to share the gospel. They are aware of the calling that comes from Christ to be bold and even a little risky or a whole lot risky. They are aware that following Christ into a country that is hostile to Christianity might mean death. What may seem risky to our sensibilities, and I think this is what we need to keep in mind when we read passages like this, like why would Paul go to Jerusalem? Why would, a, why would a person who seems to have a nice life in America become a missionary in a foreign country with no Christian presence that is actually hostile to Christianity? Why does that happen? Well, sometimes our sensibilities do not match what, what God is trying to accomplish and achieve Here's one thing I do not like about what I just said to you. Right? Here's my admission of everything I just said to you in the last two, three minutes. What I have done is equate Paul with individuals who likewise feel the call of God to go to a place where death might be knocking on the door. The problem with equating Paul to what we think of as missionaries, think foreign missionaries, global missionaries, is that I have now implied that this passage does not apply to you or me. I've suggested this verse only applies to Christian missionaries. Perhaps the chief takeaway for the American church is to pray, right? Like those brothers and sisters in Tyree, perhaps we're just to pray before sending a person out to the foreign country. While I do not think it is easy to equate Paul in this passage with, it is easy to equate Paul in this passage with missionaries. Think about David Livingston, Lottie Moon, Adonine Judson, William Carey, and I got a friend in, in the Twin Cities now in Bolivia, Lily Fluhardy, right? It's easy to make that equation, but I think we got to step back and realize, no, this also applies to us. In my opinion, I think we have a lot to learn from the courage of Christians who have been willing to die for the sake of the gospel. We have a lot to learn about what it looks like to apply verse 13 to our hearts. We want to bury verse 13 in our hearts, not just tell the missionary to bury verse 13 into their heart before they leave. So if you do not board the plane to serve Jesus in the face of hostility, you're like, you're not off the hook. I'm not off the hook. Let me, let me break down three different thoughts from the latter part of verse 13. I want to directly apply to you and me. Paul says he's ready to be imprisoned for the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you all this. Are you prepared to go to prison for the sake of Jesus Christ? Like you don't get asked that question every day, right? But we're surely confronted with the question right here in Scripture. Have you exercised like your faith muscle to the point where, where prison is actually kind of a vain threat? <laughs> Again, that was one of the questions I was even wrestling with on the drive here to preach this sermon. 
I mean, prison might scare me, but is it a gospel opportunity rather than a barrier? You might remember earlier in Acts, and Peter was on fire telling people about Jesus. Then the Jews were not happy. Peter and John were brought, brought before a Jewish court. And after it had adjourned, we, had read, we read this in Acts 5 verse 41. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin. What were they doing after being threatened? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. They rejoiced because they were treated shamefully for the name of Christ. Think about that kind of logic. I was treated shamefully and I'm rejoicing because of my Savior. I have to imagine most Christians in the first century expected to be treated shamefully for the name of Christ. I mean, what did our, our Lord say in Matthew 5? Our Lord Jesus said this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Our Lord says this. When all that happens to you, our Lord says, rejoice and be glad. Are you treated badly because you're a Christian? And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. My goal is not to scare Christians into like having greater faith in God, you know. Uh, my goal is to challenge you and myself that everything we read in Scripture must be applied to our Christian life. And I'm merely asking the question once again, are you ready to go to prison if that would be the case for the name of Jesus Christ? There's something very sobering about the question. It certainly should challenge us. Are we willing? Are you prepared to be treated shamefully on behalf of Christ? And then rejoice because you were treated shamefully because of your love for Jesus Christ. Listen, the American Christian does not have the reflex of what we read in Acts 5 and Acts 21. Our reflex to the idea of persecution is what? To fight for um, political freedom. Like, we, this is, we're going to make this a political matter, right? That's our reflex. And I get it. I appreciate the freedom afforded to Christians in America. I have genuine gratitude for this statement passed by the U.S. Congress on December 15th, 1791. It says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people to peaceably assemble, which is what we are doing right now. We are peaceably assembling, talking about the right to worship Jesus. I mean, that's Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution. I am thankful we can gather. But you and I are not promised that Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution is going to be sustained. Nope. There's no guarantee that everything you love about America will last. As a citizen of the country, of this country, feel free to fight for religious liberty. I will. But also prepare your heart for your religious liberty to be taken away. Because that is truly a privilege. 
when a missionary leaves the U.S., he or she gives up all kinds of freedoms and benefits for the cause of Christ. The American Christian, the American church, needs to be willing to do the same. Being willing to give it all up for the cause of Christ. Of course, Paul does not only mention prison, but he mentions death. He's willing to die for Jesus. After Paul arrives in Jerusalem, more on that next week, he would go to Rome, writing to the Roman church ahead of his arrival. Paul says this, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, guess what? We are the Lord's. A point to be made is that a Christian perspective of life and death, it's not materialistic. It is not about the acquisition of material possessions, education, success, notoriety. Surely the Lord could give all of that while you're alive. But the Christian perspective of life and death is really life, then death, then eternal life. That's our perspective. Life, then death, and then eternal life. In this life, we serve King Jesus. Then when we physically die, we await the day Jesus returns to redeem and restore his elect people, physical bodies and all, to eternal life. For Christians, death is not to be feared. Oh, how much we fear death. And we read over and over in Scripture, we are not to fear death. And I know, the moment I get off this pulpit and I drive home, I might be fearing death. I don't want to get hit by a car or whatever the case might be, right? That temptation is always there. But we have to be reminded once again, and we are reminded once again, Christian, we are not to fear death. That is Paul's mentality and perspective as he goes into Jerusalem because he knows in his death the Lord is glorified. In his death he will be with his Savior. In his death he has eternal life. And because we do not need to fear death, we are free to serve at the will of our Savior. It is appropriate to ask, why should we be willing to go to prison or die for Jesus? Remember, a willingness to go to jail or die for Jesus does not assume you will go to prison or die for Jesus. When Paul was in Caesarea, he did not know the extent about where he would go or how he would suffer, right? He was just simply willing. I'm willing to do this. Yeah, we had a prophetic word and a prophetic picture, but there's a lot more to the story. He was just willing. Paul had a perspective of the world and a courage of the heart that we are called to match. So just think of it like this. You, you right there sitting in the pew and the Apostle Paul had the same saving faith. You have the same saving faith. You and the great Apostle Paul linked together 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul had specific giftings to take the gospel to his perspective of the ends of the earth, but the faith of God to trust in Christ is also in you, Christian. And God has gifted you in other ways to make radical decisions for Jesus Christ. Decisions that have a, like a laser-like focus about sharing others, sharing with others about Jesus. You have the faith and the opportunity to tell others about the hope that is within you. Why? Why do you not fear death? You have the opportunity and the faith to tell others about that answer. Christians are just sold out radicals for Jesus Christ. The way to be sold out, a sold out radical of Jesus Christ is to seek Jesus with the faith he has supplied and then turn around and tell others about Jesus. So he has supplied you with the faith and the hope and now you get to turn around and say, can I tell you? Okay, conversation, now I got to tell you. I got to tell you, I got to tell you. There's one more point from this passage that I want to make. I've danced around the idea, but now I'm just going to make it abundantly clear. In verse 14, Paul's friends say, let the, will, let the will of the Lord be done. So they plead with him, don't go, don't go. Paul's like, I'm going. And they're like, all right, he's going. Well, may the will of the Lord be done. The Greek word for will uh, in this particular instance and in this particular passage could also mean decree. Uh, when, when a king, um, think, think like 16th century, when a king made a decree, it was assured to be done. So 16th century England right now, this is going to happen. The king said it. It was saints and Tyree. God is going to do whatever he pleases, right? Not only that, God has already ordained the path and every step Paul will take on the path. It's been decreed. Paul's life and death are not contingent upon the treatment of the Jews and later the Romans. Paul's life and death are held in God's sovereign hands. In a world of pain and persecution, there is a great comfort in the sovereign will of God. Knowing God is sovereign over your life is like a balm for your soul. Let me end with these statements. All Christians are called by God to go all in for Jesus. Going all in means giving up. It could mean, mean giving up property, material possessions, and even your life. The joy of going all in to follow Jesus is a life of adventure, but it's also a life of hope. It's a life of trust. Going all in to follow Jesus does mean being willing to give up your life for Jesus. But what is this life in comparison to eternity with Jesus? We become so focused on the here and now, we forget what's ahead. What is this life in comparison to eternity with Jesus? 
I do believe the time is now for the church in America, in America to be radical in her love for Jesus and love for others. But a radical love for Jesus is self-sacrificing love. A self-sacrificing love for Jesus is always ready to live for Jesus, as we read in Romans 14, and to die for Jesus. So as you consider what it means to follow Jesus, remember the path of redemption the Lord took for you. And this is how I'm going to close. Your Lord took a path of redemption up a hill to atone for your sin at the cross. Your Lord took a path of redemption up a hill so that you would be declared not guilty because of your sin. Your Lord took the path of redemption up a hill to forgive you of your sin. Your Lord took the sovereign an ordained path of redemption up the hill to set you free from sin. Your Lord took the path of redemption so that you could be reconciled to a holy and just God. Your Lord took the path of redemption and died on the cross to set you free to love in radical, but also in a God-honoring way. Your Lord, out of love, died for you. Now, are you willing to die for him? Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.